watching me play golf is it's like watching Rocky. As in, I'm up and down. I seem like I'm out. I'm back. Uh, you know, I'm never dead. I'm always coming back. And you know, that's kind of the way I play golf. It's it's. I don't worry about hitting a bad shot. I keep going first. I know I can recover. I play to my strengths. I don't try and play somebody else's game. And it is a bit swashbuckling. It, it is, as I said, Debbie was my hero growing up. I like that style of golf. Uh, I, I'm never going to be the guy who hits all the fairways and greens, and nor do I want to be. He never, he's not the winner. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. It is late October. It is cold outside, but as we all know, the professional golf calendar stops for nobody. Just last weekend in Malaysia, Justin Thomas defended his title. Meanwhile, Padraig Harrington triumphed on the European Tour at the Portugal Masters. We are lucky enough to be joined today by Mr. Harrington just a few days after he lifted the trophy in Portugal. Padraig, thank you for joining me. Uh, are you done celebrating yet? No. No, not, for sure not. You, you don't win that often, so you've got to make sure you enjoy those wins. Or what would be the point? How how'd the celebration go? Hey, it's still going. Uh, you know, I was down in Portugal. Obviously, did the the sort of official things you have to do afterwards. Had a bit of bit of a celebration with, with my friends. Were there? Obviously, my family weren't there. So uh, I came home yesterday and and uh, just really catching up with people and, and probably have a good night out at the weekend. Yeah. Now, it was your first win in eight years on the European Tour, uh, your first win overall since the, the Honda Classic in March 2015. Can you briefly explain what worked so well for you last week? Uh, my game has been pretty solid uh, most of this year. I've started putting better. I've started hitting the ball better. I'm not exactly doing it every week, and I've been telling people when the two come together that I'll have a bumper week. And, you know, last week... They did. Uh, the golf course did suit me. I did get my breaks along the way. I uh, was very strong mentally. I was very relaxed off the golf, very comfortable about where what I was doing. Uh, I just was in the middle of reading a book uh, by a guy I work with called Dave Allred. He'd just written a book called Pressure Pressure Principle. And, uh, you know, I was reading through it, and it gave me a few pointers, especially about my self-talk on the golf course, the language I've been using uh, and you know, kind of getting disappointed in myself when I don't hit the right shots. So you know, I was, I was very focused on that. And even though that was a mental toss, my physical posture uh, as I was walking around the golf course improved. Uh, so you know, you could see it was having a big effect on me. And, and I have to say, I've won over 30 tournaments around the world now. I don't think I was ever as comfortable and as relaxed as I was during this one. So you were you were saying things specifically to yourself. What what were you kind of telling yourself during the rounds? I was more catching up on the things that I was I was it wasn't. I do say good things to myself all the time, but I was catching what I was saying bad to myself as well uh, at at those moments where you know you'd hit a shot and you know a lot of times I'd be like simple things like I can't believe I've done that and yes. I've done it many times. I should believe it at this stage. Uh, so little things, just little bits of disappointment that creep in. And it's the, the, the great thing for me is I was watching that language and, and, and you know, ensuring that it didn't get in on me. My over, my physical posture improved. And, that, you know, everybody tries. You, you obviously got to work on your posture when you're on the golf course. You've got to stand tall. You've got to have command posture. You've got to walk around the place like you own it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I could see that happening to me. I was I was a much taller, happier guy out there, 
and uh, you know that does help you make better decisions. Yeah, no, I've I've read in the past people talk about golfers and their posture just walking between holes. You can kind of tell. I know people used to talk about Tiger Woods, the way that he would walk onto a range. People would say that guy looks like he's ready to win. Would you agree with something like that? Yeah, yes. You know, there's something in it. There's no doubt about it. I I think sometimes people see somebody winning and they're looking for a reason. Yeah. And and they put things together, but there's no doubt what you say and how you carry yourself have a huge impact on your decision making, and and that can lead to better performances, performances, you know, where you, where you, you know, you're closer to to being in the zone, let's say, uh, you're closer to being there. It doesn't mean it works all the time, but over in general, uh, you know, it's going to improve your play from week in, week out. I, I you know, I play with Pro-Am, you know, Pro-Am nearly every week, and my amateurs, they're unbelievable what they say to themselves. If, <laughs> if, 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 if an, a third party said it to them, they'd, you know, oh, they'd sue them probably. And yet these people are saying it to themselves. And, and oftentimes I've seen it, you know, where I hit it, a tee shot, say, in the, in the right tree, say, and the amateur, and I walk off, you know, okay, I'll hit a tee shot in the right tree. Not so bad. And my amateur would hit the same shot in the right right trees, and he'd berate himself like it was, he'd never hit a bad shot before in his life, and how could he have done that? And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, wow, he's just seen me hit it, and yet he's much more upset than me. So it's amazing how I, as I said, I'm pretty good at it, but I had to catch myself up last week and, 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 and obviously other weeks. But amateurs in general are just terrible at what they say to themselves. Their expectations are, are incredible. Instead of working with their bad shots, they're always fighting against them. Yeah, that's something certainly everybody could probably learn from Padraig Harrington himself. Just don't <laughs> lower your expectations a little bit and don't, don't kill yourself for, for one bad miss because everybody misses. You know, pe- people think lowering your expectations is not trying. That's, that's not the case. Uh, you know what? I try so hard, you know, it, it, it's just getting a better balance on, on, on what you're doing. You know, you, you can always play the next shot when you hit it in the trees. It's not the end of the world. And, you know, you can, and, and oftentimes you, it works out quite well. So it, it, we tend to t- make things out to be black and white, that if we hit a bad shot, that, you know, that's caused a disaster. We're not always, not always the case. You kind of have to wait and see. I, I know I grew up, uh, a great hero of mine was Seve Ballesteros when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. when I watched him on TV, you know, he, he swashbuckling style and he'd hit it in the trees off the tee. And he basically, he'd run down that ferry with, with joy looking forward to how he was going to hit a shot out of the trees that nobody else could play. And then when I came out on tour in 96, 97, especially 97 when he's Ryder Cup captain, I played with him an awful lot during the summer. And obviously we know now there was some, he was having his struggles at that time and obviously he had a brain tumour as well. Or, so, you know, but every time he hit it in the trees, it was like a dozen practice swings trying to figure it out on the tee box before he left the tee. He, he was a completely different person to the one I'd seen growing up who who never took a practice swing, never thought why he hit it in the trees, just always thought, well, what am I going to do next? Whereas when he was playing poorly, you know, it was all about why he did stuff rather than thinking of, okay, let's enjoy the next challenge. Would, would you say that he was he had reached a point in his career when he was trying to become more perfect or that something just kind of flipped with him? Oh, they, they, those sort of 
when when he started with his swing changes and things like that. And and you know you could probably parallel now that saying this, it, you could par- par- parallel it to, to Tiger. You know, probably by the time the end of the eighties, start of the early nineties, the media had gotten his head that he wasn't a good driver at the ball. If you read a lot of the books that are written, for, you know, I've read like Sam Torrance, a good man in his autobiography. He would have played with Seve all through the 80s, and he picked Seve as the best driver of golf ball he had seen. So he was a great driver of the ball, and I know I played with Tiger Woods from you know 97 onwards. I would have played with Tiger Woods quite a lot, and he was a phenomenal driver of the golf ball. But the media seemed to get into his head, you know, around 2007. Uh, you know, the media got in his head. Started, you, you, you know, you hit a ball in the trees. Oh, you've got to fix that. Whereas. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to fix it. He was so good from the trees and he was so aggressive off the tee. That's what made him a great driver of the ball. And and every time he stood in the par five, Tiger hit it 330 down the middle. You know, the big drives he hit well. So he hit the odd shot astray. But when you're hitting it 330 yards off the tee, you are going to miss fairways. It's not a huge big deal. And and certainly, I think the media just harped on about it so much with Tiger Woods because it looked like he could improve in that area. And and it's it's caused issues from you know down the road. Mm-hmm. You know he's he's always you now he's a guy who who every time he takes out the driver he's trying to prove to the world yeah. that he's a good driver of the ball, which he never needed to do that in early on in his career. If the hole didn't suit me, took out an iron, hit it down the fairway, and was was happy with that because he wasn't trying to prove anything. Now, if it's a tough driving hole, he nearly has to take the driver out and show everybody he can hit it down the middle. Yeah. Uh, which is putting a huge amount of, of stress on it. Yeah, that's good perspective. Uh, I don't think people, when people try to uh, contextualize what Tiger is as a golfer nowadays, they definitely don't, I don't think they look to former golfers uh, like Seve. That's a, that's a good thought. Now, back to your... Vi- uh, it, 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 Go ahead. It, it happens to us all. We, we all trying to live up to our own expectations of how we played when we won our biggest events the media's expectations, the public's expectations. And, and, and none of that really is, is... It's not as black and white as people think it is. It's not, you know... Tiger hit plenty of bad shots, even in 2000, his greatest year ever. Mm-hmm. He hit plenty of bad golf shots during that period. He just was tremendous at recovering when he hit a bad shot and hit plenty, really, but obviously hit lots of good shots. So, you know, it's not like you can ever eliminate all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do get caught up in that, trying to think that there is such a thing as perfection. Uh, but you know the reality is, especially when it comes to expectations, there isn't. Yeah, there isn't. Uh, now back to your your comeback win. Uh, part of the story, obviously, with this victory, is the clubs that you were using. You changed irons. Uh, you went to the Wilson FG Tour. Yeah, I put a new set of irons in. Uh, I put the new Wilson FG uh, Tour V6 irons. So we, as Wilson players, we all tested and helped put our input into these at the end of last year, started this year. We, we were testing them all out there at the TPC Sawgrass in, in May. So this is the first time they've actually finished product has come out. And uh, I put them straight in the bag last week at Portugal. And a winning week, it, 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 it's a bit like that. You know, sometimes it is nice to have something fresh. And, you know, they were, they're beautiful irons. They look great. They perform great. Uh, so I was very comfortable with them uh, straight away. And, it is nice when you put something in and you get that win. It certainly brings uh, the clubs bring confidence to you, and 
the winning brings confidence to to the club. So it, it's both. Now, they're not available. I think they're only available in 2017. So that's yeah. the advantage of being a pro. We get things early. Yeah, well, I'm curious about the process because uh, at some point during your year, obviously at Sawgrass, you kind of first had your first look at the irons and then you are not able to use them really until last week. So is there ever a point where you're like, you made your mind up, like I'm using those now? Was it was it late last year that you're like, all right, I'm waiting, I'm kind of waiting to use these clubs that I think work you know, for me? We get to see the irons in very early doors, you know, what they're going to be looking like, uh, you know, more in in a in an unfinished version, in a in a in 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 model shape. Then the irons are brought to us where we can hit them, and usually that is uh, May uh, of the previous year. So we usually do it at TPC Sawgrass. That's where all the players are available, mm-hmm. and we give the final say on what we like and don't like. You usually find when it comes to a player, you like a club straight away. I, I, I don't know a professional golfer that takes a club home, puts it in his garage and comes out two weeks later and says, I'm going to try that club. You know when you have it in your hand whether you like it or not. And, and usually what happens is Wilson will bring out these clubs in May and it's like players are grabbing them. Oh, I'll take that and keep it. And they're going, oh, we need that for the other players. They have to test that club because they've only made a limited amount up at that stage uh, just as a test run. So, it's often a bit of a fight over who gets what straight away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is always the case that you like a club straight away. And I couldn't wait to get these irons in. I've been waiting the four or five months to get the full set. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted with what they came up with, how it finished out. And they listened to us all. They listened to me. And they certainly made a beautiful iron. Yeah, it's it's a pretty interesting time of year for equipment. You know, guys kind of are able to finally get the new clubs in their bag, they're able to tinker with it uh, a little bit more seriously, actually play with it. Uh, a guy that you know very well, Rory McIlroy, just uh, began moving towards TaylorMade for his Fairway Woods and Driver. His case is unique, obviously, leaving Nike, uh, or Nike leaving I, the business, but go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I obviously a lot of people are waiting to see this week uh, what some of those Nike players are going to play. It's kind of getting to that stage that what players are thinking now is they want to test and get equipment in the bag before the end of the season so that they can start fresh with confidence. You don't want to be starting with a new set of clubs in the new year. It's not something you you want to start. You always want to start well, get that momentum going. So you, you prefer to change at the end of the year, finish the year off, and then start fresh. Uh, you got to remember, if you change too many things, you don't know which... Uh, which one is making a difference. So each time you change something, like I changed my irons last week, but you know, nothing else changed. The same golf ball, the same drivers. So if I was hitting my irons long last week and my driver the same distance, well, I'd know that these irons are very powerful. Mm-hmm. If I changed everything at once, well, I don't know if it's just me or if I changed, especially if you change golf ball and something else. You, you can never tell which one is having the effect. So how often do you change your golf ball? I haven't. Uh, no, I, I, I'm. 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 I'm in the standard uh, 2016 Pro V1X. Mm-hmm. I know they have a variation coming out specifically that I've asked for. Uh, it's coming out. Literally, I was meant to go to to Vegas in a couple of weeks' time, and I was hoping to have it there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'd be able to get it so quickly in Europe, but 
the variation was was a lot of my pushing what I wanted, and uh, you know, Titleist have done a great job listening to me on that, and they they produced the golf ball. Essentially, it's going to be a little harder, spin a bit more, and should go further. So it should go two miles an hour further, uh, which would be five yards, but also has more spin, but will have a harder feel. So it's a it's a it's an interesting combination because you know a lot of the manufacturers. Uh, have gone back to a softer, uh, low compression golf ball, which which I tried, mm-hmm. but I get no control when I go to a low compression ball. It feels good, but I have no control. I'd rather have a hard golf ball with lots of spin, and uh, you know that's what uh, you know. Titleist are making a variation on this on their new ball that they've brought out. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of players like myself will play it, and you know once once they see how we get on. Uh, how much we like it and, and you know they'll be able to see whether you know that's what the mass market wants yeah that makes sense now rory uh is the guy that's getting a lot of attention for his change in clubs he's also a guy that you were following closely when you were an assistant captain at the Ryder cup what did you think of rory's performance there at hazeltine I, I thought rory was was in great form that week he played lovely really embraced it really liked it uh you know he really enjoyed being the Europe's number one and leading from the front. Uh, you know, like taking that responsibility. I think, uh, you know, he played great. Uh, probably going into the Sunday, he did play really well with Patrick the tool and played great. They they were certainly, Rory ran out a bit of steam uh, mm-hmm. on the back nine. And I, I, I've got to say, you know, in a perfect world, it's too much to ask a player to play four matches into the singles in the Ryder Cup. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, you'd never ask your best players to do that. But uh, we obviously did with five players. I think played five played five matches, which is a, it's an awful lot of work uh, under such intensity uh, in order for a player to be fresh in the singles coming down the stretch. Yeah. Now the intensity, uh, it being on American soil, the Americans having not won very recently in the event. What was your perception of how the fans, the crowds, how they uh, how they helped or hurt the competition? I think they make the competition. Yeah. Whatever you say, they make the competition, whether you like it or not. I know all the people at home who watched it on TV watched it because of the divisive nature of the of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It was an atmosphere. It's a real atmosphere. It's a real buzz. It's really exciting. It's not like anything else. It's not like any other event. Nor should it be. Nor ever will it be. Uh, and if and you know if we wanted it to be like other events. Well, it would be boring. It wouldn't be the Ryder Cup. So, yeah, there's a, some a little bit of antagonism there. There's a few people, like you know, percentage-wise, it didn't even register percentage-wise. The, the odd person who was shouting things out. Uh, I'm sure it's no different to the way the U.S. players feel when they come to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just electrifying, though. It's it's compelling viewing. Uh, it, it's so exciting. Uh, you wouldn't, you know, I, I'm, I'm for one that, you know, I think everybody should just get on with it and man up and, and you know, <laughs> accept it for what it is because it's an extraordinary event. And it is that way because you have, you know, such vocal uh, home support on either side, mm-hmm. uh, such passionate crowds. I'm not, look, everybody agrees. All the all the U.S. fans agree too because they were, and the U.S. players, the odd idiot who would say something that you wouldn't want said in front of your your 12 year old kid 
well, he shouldn't be there. Yeah. Look, that's it in the end of the day. Not that he shouldn't be there, but nobody liked it, and, and the U.S. fans were alienating them and, and separating them, and, you know, the, the, nobody wants that. But overall, we do want the atmosphere. We want that sort of, uh, you know, that bias in the atmosphere because it just lends itself to such a, a competitive match. It lends itself to an exciting match. And let's face it, you know, if we didn't have that atmosphere... You know, unfortunately, it'd be like the President's Cup, a nice, friendly match. Mm-hmm. We'll see if the President's Cup can move anywhere near the Ryder Cup in terms of that intensity. Now, Well, yeah, well the President's Cup has to make a huge difference. Everybody plays in the President's Cup. That's, that's what you do when you're playing under eight. You don't do that in the, in, the, in the big boys' world. In the big boys' world, you have to drop people. That's what causes controversy amongst the team. That's mm-hmm. what's hard to manage. If you play 12 people, that's everybody gets to play. There's no stress for the captain, no pressure. He just has to put guys out. When you're dropping four players, that's 33% of your team is getting dropped for each match. That is so hard to manage. Everybody wants to play all the time. It's, this is why the Ryder Cup is a difficult format. It's because we don't play everybody. That's the thing, as I said, that's what you do when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're at the under eight and you're playing soccer, everybody gets to play. And fair enough at under eight, but it's not. The Ryder Cup is the way it is because of the fact that there's huge strategy in playing and dropping players. No, there's no. a huge atmosphere created by the teams that, that runs into, the, into the, the families, runs into the spectators, and it just adds that bit of buzz, that bit of conspiracy. Remember, back in, in Celtic Manor, Phil Mickelson was dropped the whole day of Saturday. Yep. Can you not, like, that's, in the President's Cup, he would have played all day. Like, when he was dropped, can you imagine the way the European team thought about, how the US team thought about, how the media thought about Like, that just doesn't happen in the President's Cup. Yeah, that's true. Now, I appreciate your thoughts on that. It makes me wonder, Padraig, you're not that far from being a captain yourself. You know, players go from playing in the Ryder Cup, then they become assistant captains, which you did around your age, and then they get considered for a captain role. Uh, do you feel like you're on the right track to be a captain soon? Oh, I, I, I feel like I'm a player. I, I always want to be a player. I, 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 you know, that's, that's who I am. Uh, in my head, I'm, I'm going to be a player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think nothing else. I don't want to give up. It's a huge... It takes two years of your life to be a, a Ryder Cup captain. And, you know, I'm 45 now. I don't want to give up my 45th and 46th year. I'm selfish. I want to play golf. And in my head, I believe I can make the Ryder Cup. Uh, I believe I can be, you know, whether that's real or not, that doesn't matter. It's, it's up to me to create my own reality. Uh, so I'm going to try and make the next Ryder Cup. I push that captaincy down the road. I hope at some stage I will get the captaincy. But it's not a foregone conclusion. It's not, you know, in Europe, it's a, it, we, we vote amongst ourselves for who becomes the captain and the... Uh, I think probably Paul McGinley changed the, the ideas behind who can become captain. Before that, it essentially went to somebody who'd won a major. Mm-hmm. But when Paul came in and did such a good job, while he had a, a great European career, he wouldn't have necessarily, you know, 10 years previous, they might have been picking somebody else. So there's plenty of people in with a chance, and it, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to get it when I want it. Uh, but I'm selfish enough that I'm going to take that chance. Yeah. I'm glad that you said your playing career comes first because you are 45, and there 
was a hell of a battle at the British Open this year between a 40-year-old and a 46-year-old. Now, you wrote following your win in Portugal that the win, more than anything, means you're encroaching upon the top 50 in the world rankings. That's a goal for you because it means an invite to Augusta. You said, for me, it's all about getting back to the majors as I know I have more of them in me. That's a very uh, statement that it it breeds curiosity because you've displayed the ability to compete on both tours, but it's been a while since you top 10 in a major. So do you, what makes you believe that uh, major career major number four is out there and it's waiting for you? Well, I led the open last year, not this year, after 50, uh, more after about, about 58 or nine, 59 holes. I was the leader of the tournament. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's only that's only eighteen months ago. I finished thirteenth at the PGA this year. Yep. Certainly had a bit of a buzz going. Yep. And uh, so the majors are easier for me, no doubt about it. I just have trouble getting myself in contention. Uh, well, at least at a major, I have that buzz all the time. At a normal event, sometimes I don't quite have the buzz, but I do. What the difference between me now and maybe when I was uh, certainly in the middle of my career or earlier in my career, I convert. Like when I get in contention, I really do play. I, I read the situation so much better than I did earlier in my career. I have a great understanding of who's my competition, what they're capable of doing, what I need to look out for, and what I need to do. I, I made mistakes, you know, as a as a rookie when I was out there. Uh, I thirty, I th- over thirty wins and I had thirty second places. So in those thirty second places, I learned a lot about winning. Yeah, and and. and what not to expect and not to, you know, and it doesn't mean I get it right, but I read the situation very well now. Personally, as a golf fan, I love when I can see uh, a player in their 20s dueling off with a player in their 40s. It's a lot of fun. And it's a very interesting discussion as far as you and majors go because the British Open will return to Birkdale in nine months uh, where you won the 2008 British Open. I'm curious if there are any great stories about that that British Open that nobody really knows about. Oh, there's, there's hundreds of stories. Uh, you know, obviously, I hit probably the greatest shot in my career in many people's eyes on the 71st hole where I hit a I hit a five wood from 274 yards to two feet mm-hmm. when most people thought I should have laid up. Uh, the interesting thing about that, and it was something my coach always said, it was my favorite club in the bag. And I just hit it off the tee, uh, and, off, and I was feeling great. And it's easy to hit a good shot when you're feeling great. It's very difficult to hit a, a great. Sorry, it's easy to hit a great shot when you're feeling good. It's very difficult to hit a good shot when you're not feeling good, when you're feeling bad. So, in the end of the day, I was in the best place in the world when I was hitting that shot. If you ask me to go back and hit that tomorrow, I I, I would find it very difficult. Now. The idea of you and majors, the way that you're talking about them makes me excited to watch you this year because I, I remember you leading the British Open, and that was a kind of a wacky one most recently. And then the PGA last year, you had a yeah, re- look, really great weekend. A, a friend of mine this week described me. He says, watching me play golf, is, it's like watching Rocky. As in, I'm up and down. I seem like I'm out and back. Uh, you know, I'm never dead. I'm always coming back. And, you know, that's kind of the way I play golf. It's, it's, I don't worry about hitting a bad shot. I keep going first. I know I can recover. 
I play to my strengths. I don't try and play somebody else's game. And it is a bit swashbuckling. It, it is, as I said, Debbie was my hero growing up. I like that style of golf. Uh, I, I'm never going to be the guy who hits all the fairways and greens, and nor do I want to be. He never, he's not the winner. I love it. We can leave it at that, Padre. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm excited now to watch you chase majors, chase down major number four in your career. Whether that comes at the Masters in April or later on in the season, that'll be up to him to answer over the next five months. Thank you for tuning in to the Golf.com podcast. Do me a favor. Please subscribe to the podcast. Tell someone else to subscribe. Give it a rating. That gives me some positive reinforcement that, like Padraig Harrington, I'm doing things right a little bit. If you don't like what I'm doing, let me know on Twitter at Sean underscore Zock. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Zock.